Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 5, Episode 24 of Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. Normally, this is where I say, produced and brought to you by, and now we're in an interesting time, a transitional time. As many of you know, I am uh, no longer working at group publishing, even though we are still connected via this podcast. So group is still, um, uh, values this podcast so much that they let me take it with me on the other side. And um, I'm exploring uh, new paths, new options for myself right now. So I'm not quite sure to tell you um, who it's produced by. So the last episode, I said it was produced by Jesus Centered Resources. And that sounded like that was a thing. <laughs> well, it's not a thing yet. Uh, I'm just prospecting to see what I might be doing in the future. And I have lots of possibilities right now. I'm just trying to keep my hands open to whatever Jesus brings my way. So let's just say that it's produced by Jesus Centered Resources, and we'll figure out what that means down the line. But my name is Rick. I'm author of The God Who Fights For You, which was released last year. It's just, that's, by the way, is a book for those who are um, going through pain, hurt, and challenge. Um, and you're in this place where uh, God doesn't make sense to you anymore because what's happening to you doesn't jibe with um, the good God that uh, you've been um, connecting to, relating to your whole life. Suddenly, he doesn't make sense to you anymore. And, and so it's a book to, that really explores the depths of God's heart in the midst of our own darkness and, and struggle and pain. It's maybe uh, the most personal book I've ever written. It's called The God Who Fights For You. It was released last year. Before that, um, I wrote a book called Spiritual Grit. And before that, The Jesus-Centered Life. And before that, I was the general editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible. So um, my life sort of orbits around, revolves around Jesus. And so does this podcast. <laughs> this podcast really was birthed out of uh, the slipstream of the Jesus-Centered Life, a book I wrote about three or four years ago, which was an attempt to explore what a life looks like when everything that you are orbits around your relationship with Jesus in a natural, organic, non-weirdo way. So uh, out of that book came this podcast. And, and this fall, as I've mentioned before, uh, the Jesus Center Daily will be coming out. It's a daily devotional. And uh, as we get a bit deeper into the summer, I'm going to uh, start to engage with you more about the release of that and uh, make possible for those who listen to this podcast to get an early taste of, of that daily devotional. So we'll talk more about that in a bit. So we're right now in, in the second episode of a new series I'm calling In His Image. In His Image. We know from Genesis that God created us in His image. And this is actually a mud puddle phrase. For If you're new to the podcast, when I say mud puddle, what I mean by that is when we come up to something in the Bible that is a, something that Jesus said or did or something like this, a phrase in the Bible that we're very familiar with um, um, or doesn't make sense to us, 
we treat it like a mud puddle. We jump over it. Whereas children, and Jesus said that the kingdom of God belongs to children, when children come up to a mud puddle, they jump into it. So here on this podcast and in all of the books that I write, my, our attempt here is to jump into puddles instead of jump over them. So in his image is a mud puddle because we've heard it so much, especially if you've grown up in the church, that it doesn't really mean anything to us anymore. What does it mean that we are created in the image of God? We know it doesn't mean that, that uh, in, the, in its most simplistic form that we look like him physically. It means that our essence is like his essence. So let's explore what that means in our everyday life. Let's explore what makes Jesus, Jesus, and then discover how we're wired to reflect who he is and what he does in our everyday life. It's not about trying harder or working harder. It's about embracing what is true about us that is reflective of what is true about him. So that's the series we're in. We'll see how long we go with this one. Today's focus in this series, In His Image, is on passion. I think I'm going to call this passion fuel. We'll see. We'll see, we'll see what people think it's about when they see that phrase. But uh, in the last episode, we explored uh, the neediness of Jesus. We often don't think about how Jesus was vulnerable about his need, and we kind of camped on the, the, uh, what happened to him in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was about to face torture in the cross and he was having a raw conversation with his father and he invited his friends to be with him while he had that raw conversation. His friends kept falling asleep. So we, we explored more deeply um, how vulnerable and needy Jesus revealed himself to be and how, uh, how much he respects neediness in those who follow him. In fact, our neediness is at the foundation of our relationship with him. It's our neediness is the thing that we're embarrassed about, we're ashamed of, we wish we weren't so needy. And sometimes the people in our life that we would go to the other side of the street rather than to greet, are, um, sometimes the reason we, would, we do that is because those people are so overtly needy. Neediness is not a particularly uh, positive thing in our culture. You would not put I'm needy on your resume, but it is a central characteristic that Jesus modeled and a central characteristic that he loved in others. So he revealed his own needs to others and, embracing his, and embraced his own neediness. And he really loved and respected the same thing when others did, when others did that. So in this episode, we're gonna bridge from this conversation about finding safety in our relationship with Jesus, safe enough that we can be real about our needs and safe enough that we feel um, able to be real about our needs with others. We're gonna bridge from that conversation about neediness into what you might call the everyday fuel for that kind of relationship. So the, there's an important insight here that comes out of uh, last week's episode. We don't really want to live under the shadow of our desperate circumstances, always as a prerequisite for our desperate dependence on Jesus. We want to be desperately dependent on him, but not sort of quote, quote unquote forced into it because of pain and challenge and hurt in our lives. How do we live in an everyday way, desperately dependent on him without the, uh, the uh, thunderstorm on our horizon all the time? 
How do we do that? So uh, if you can imagine, uh, when's the last time you were on a roller coaster? And if you know that feeling, you get into the roller coaster car and it hooks into the track, you can feel it kind of latch onto the track as it starts to pull you up that first really big hill. Um, you can feel the, the torque required to pull that entire train of cars up that hill. And it's pulling and pulling and pulling until you get to the very top. And then you peek over the crest of that hill into an impossibly steep incline that goes down the other side. Once you get to that peak and the, and the cars and the roller coaster uh, start to uh, head over that peak and down the other side, then it carries its own momentum. And if you think about our, our relationship with need like that, our need, our hurt, our desperation, sort of is the torque that draws us up the hill. And we, and we get to this pinnacle of the hill and then we're no longer embarrassed or self-conscious about our need. We're just raw with Jesus about our need. And that's when we go down the other side of that the first hill on the roller coaster. So the, the thing is that all of that pain and hurt and desperation is what drags us up the hill. And we don't want to live in a constant state of that. Uh, it's exhausting to live that way. It's, it's um, emotionally, physically, mentally exhausting to live that way. Well, there is an alternative fuel source that is available to, to those who want to live a more dependent life with Jesus. And it's the very kind of fuel that fueled Jesus's own relationship with the Trinity that helps us to live in an everyday way. And that fuel is passion. So that's what we're going to explore today. So the first question is to think about, I just want you to, to, to grab onto the first thing that pops into your head when I ask you this question. What is the first thing that pops into your head when I ask you, what's something you're very passionate about? What's something you're very passionate about? And what is that thing that just popped into your head? It doesn't have to be the thing you're most passionate about. It's just the first thing that popped into your head. So for me, uh, I just asked myself that question. The first thing that popped into my head is, uh, and my friends, and especially my family, will not be surprised when I say jazz. The, the, the music art form of jazz is what popped into my head. I am very passionate about jazz, but I wasn't always. In fact, I avoided jazz uh, for most of my life because my experience of that form of music was that it was cheesy and shallow. And uh, uh, that some forms of jazz actually are cheesy and shallow. I do not listen to smooth jazz or fusion jazz, or um, I don't particularly like big band jazz. Those are all forms of jazz that don't really draw me. But I am very much drawn to what I would call classic old school swing jazz and bebop jazz, sort of a, a improvisational jazz, but with a melody. <laughs> Some improv jazz has no melody and I'm not, it's very discordant and uh, I don't enjoy that. So I have a very particular uh, substrata of jazz that I am very, very passionate about. And how did that happen? How do you develop a passion like that? For me, um, it happened simultaneous to a radical deepening of my relationship with Jesus. Um, you might say it happened during the transition in my life from uh, a Christian life that was essentially conventional, um, like every kind of Christian life I had ever come across, which was 
basically trying hard to be better, trying hard to follow the things that you're supposed to follow when you're a Christian, trying hard to have a quiet time and go to church and participate in worship and maybe a Bible study. Um, all of the things that make up the sort of the building blocks of a conventional Christian life. There was a time in my life about 20 years ago where um, something started to shift in me, where I began to be much, much more fascinated with just the person of Jesus. I wasn't then reading about Jesus to extract life lessons. I was reading about Jesus to get to know him more deeply and to slow down in the stories about him to try to consider what is this person, what must this person be actually like? And to start to bridge away from a sort of a head-based relationship where I knew scripture and I tried to follow scripture to a, uh, a relationship that, that emanated from the heart. And during this transition, I started to get strangely more interested in this kind of form of jazz that I just described. And um, imperceptibly, these two things kind of grew up together. The, the more my passion for Jesus grew, the more my passion for jazz grew. Now, the, my friends and people that know me constantly poke fun at me for my passion for jazz. They, they make fun of it the way close friends make fun of your eccentricities. And this is definitely an eccentricity. Your passions can also become an eccentricity, can't they? They can become the thing that makes you weird. And I guess my love for jazz does make me weird. But uh, the deeper I got into these two growing passions, I started to ask myself, why do I love jazz so much? Uh, when, I, when it meant really nothing to me before. And Jesus helped me to understand what was happening inside of me at the time. In my relationship with Jesus, I was moving away from notes on a page, like, you know, uh, classical music might, might be best described as following notes on a page. You're, you're, if you're in an orchestra, you all need to follow the notes that are on your page in order for the music to sound okay. I had started to move away from notes on a page to something much more improvisational in my relationship with Jesus. I would say my relationship with Jesus became much more organic and everyday and intimate and surprising and upending and exciting. Um, that's what was happening. So as my relationship with Jesus became more improvisational, I was drawn to this improvisational art form of jazz. I, I just grew to respect the beauty and art of this form of music. And it became the soundtrack for my intimacy with Jesus and it remains to this day. If you came over to my house today, in fact, my wife, my wife, Bev, has a, uh, a chronic immune deficiency that has led to a chronic disease that uh, requires that every three weeks, she has a three and a half hour infusion of immunoglobulin. And she's at actually at quite high risk to be exposed to COVID. So we've done a great deal in our family to try to hold off and follow the guidelines to make sure that uh, my wife is not exposed to this virus, because if she was, it, it would be very dire for her. But um, for 15 years, she's had a groundbreaking, innovative treatment that has stopped the advance of this disease. And uh, so, but to do that, every three weeks, we have a nurse visit our home. Well, today, Bev's regular nurse it, uh, could not make it, and so we have 
a, a guest nurse in our home. And uh, one of the first things she noticed when she came into our home is that there's jazz playing in our home. She said, what is this music? I like it. I said, it's a jazz, certain kind of jazz. And uh, she said, I like this. It's kind of peppy. <laughs> so uh, jazz music in our home is sort of the backdrop of our life here. And my, my kids have grown up around it. They, uh, they know the names of jazz musicians that uh, probably 99% of their peers do not know. Um, and they do, I must be, I gotta be honest here, both my wife and my kids sometimes on rare occasions will say, dad, can we listen to something other than jazz for a while? And then we listen to this shallow, obnoxious pop music in our home. <laughs> but uh, the, my kids would say that they have grown up with uh, jazz as their soundtrack of their life. And I'm not sure if that's going to warp them into the future or whether it will uh, enrich them. I, I hope it's the latter, but uh, because it's a passion, um, I, uh, as is true with all passions, you want that passion to be lived out in your everyday life. You, it's, it's not about discipline. It's not about making a choice or being intentional. You are just absolutely drawn to that thing, whatever it is, and it's like breathing for you. Well, that's what passions produce in us. So um, obviously we all have a wide range of passions. Uh, what, and if you think about what are the common threads amongst all of our passions? I think uh, some of those common threads, I'm not gonna be comprehensive here. I'm just gonna throw a few things out that I think are common to all passions. I think all passions come from a deeper place in us. Um, you could call that deeper place the heart. Obviously the, when we say the heart, we're using that metaphorically. It's not just the organ of our heart. The heart is really the core of our being, where the, the, our deepest commitments and convictions live inside our heart. So our passions emanate from the core of who we are. But how do those things become convictions and passions? Uh, I think they become convictions and passions when they capture our heart, when they, when they grip us somehow. Now, the passions are powerful. If you think about it, uh, they can either powerfully draw people to you or powerfully, powerfully repel people from you, depending on how they relate to your passion. Passions, I think, are often other-centered. Um, and I think that's because they're somehow reflective of the heart of Jesus, who is other-centered. Uh, a passion, like I said before, I think can be born of conviction. But a conviction, I, I guess, in my own sort of... Uh, everyday way of describing what a conviction is, it's a respect and love for something higher than ourselves, a respect and love for something higher than ourselves, and a determination and a commitment to pursue or further that thing, whatever it is. And you can see why that can both draw people to us and also repel them. Um, and if you, so, so let's switch just for a second. Let's uh, hang with me here for a second. Let's, let's take a hard 180 degree turn here and let's explore the dynamics of gravity for just a minute. I'm gonna connect these two together in just a second, but let's just think about the dynamics of gravity. So what, why do we land on the ground when we jump up instead of like floating off into space? Uh, why, why does that, what, like, well, the first answer is, well, we're not on the moon. <laughs> if we jumped on the moon, we would definitely float. Um, and if you jump from someplace in space, you might float forever. So why, when we're on the earth, 
do, do we land on the ground instead of just floating off? Well, or why do things fall down, obviously, when we throw them or drop them? So gravity is an invisible force. It pulls objects toward each other. So Earth's gravity, obviously, is what keeps us on the ground and what makes things fall. So Albert Einstein described gravity as a curve in space that wraps around an object. A curve in space that wraps around an object. And in this case, such as a, a, like a, a star or a planet. So if another object is nearby, it is pulled into that curve. And anything that has mass also has gravity. Anything that has a mass to it also produces gravity or uh, emanates this invisible force. So objects that have more mass actually exert more gravity. They have a greater force of gravity attached to them. Gravity also gets weaker with distance. So that means that the closer objects are to each other, the stronger their gravitational pull on each other is. So Earth's gravity comes from all of its mass. And all of its mass makes a combined gravitational pull on all of the mass in your body. That's what ultimately gives you weight. Your weight is tied to your gravitational pull. And your gravitational pull is tied to the mass that you're closest to. That means your weight can change. That's why you're, when you're in space, you're weightless <laughs> because you're further away from the mass that produces that gravity. If you were on a planet with less mass than on Earth, you would weigh less than you do here. That's as simple as that. Now, black holes are these places in, the, in, in, our, in our galaxy that pack so much mass into such a small volume that their gravity is strong enough to keep anything, even light, from escaping their gravitational pull. So when you've heard the term uh, event horizon, that's this invisible line that as you get closer to a black hole, when you cross over the event horizon, you no longer have the capability of uh, escaping the gravitational pull of that black hole. You are caught and you're permanently caught in that gravitational pull because it's so strong. Um, here's, a, here's something I didn't know before I started digging into this a little bit. This surprised me. Did you know that there's places on Earth that have a greater mass underground and therefore have a stronger gravitational pull tied to that greater mask, greater mass. So when you happen to be um, in one of these places on Earth that underneath the ground has greater mass, you actually weigh more than if you happen to be in a place that has less mass on it. There's actually, NASA has a mapping technology that they use satellites to help them with that maps the gravitational pull around the Earth. And you can see there's some hot spots that have stronger gravity than others. And so if you want to lose a few pounds, just move to a place that has less mass underneath you and it'll automatically uh, make you less heavy. Never hear that as a weight loss plan. So there, there's a little overview of gravity. And I said we were going to loop back and connect ourselves back to passion. So let's explore all of the ways that passion and gravity are similar. All of the ways that passion, the passion that you experience in your life and the natural force of gravity, how are they similar? Here's a few things to think about. 
So first of all, passion and gravity are both a constant force. Now let's go back to my passion for jazz for a minute. Uh, the reason that my kids sometimes say, can we please listen to something else? <laughs> it's because I forget that turning on jazz music as a backdrop in our home is like breathing to me. Um, there are very few moments in our day that you can't hear jazz as a backdrop to our, our family. It's become uh, an inexorable force in my life. I know it sounds weird. It probably is weird, but this is what passions do. They, they come to be like breathing in your life. Like you can't imagine yourself apart from that passion. It just becomes part of your identity, part of your makeup. It's a constant force. So my kids have to ask to listen to other music because if they didn't, they would never have a break from the constant force that is jazz in my life. So uh, both gravity and passions are powerful, but they can also be detrimental. Uh, obviously, my kids want to break from this music because sometimes it's detrimental to them. They're tired of my passion because it's a constant force and they need a break from it sometimes. So that's an aspect of both passion and gravity that are similar. Another one is that um, if you think about this, passions are developed from a smaller thing being captured by a larger thing, a higher thing, a bigger thing. Our passions are always tied to something that is bigger than us. So the gravitational pull of the thing that is bigger than us draws us toward it in an inexorable way. So passions always have as their object something bigger than we are. And they also spring from a deep place. If we talk about that there's places on the earth that have a different gravitational pull because underneath the surface, there is a greater mass in those places. Well, that's like passion as well. Um, passions are like the, the critical mass in our soul. They're the places of greatest weight in our heart. And that's where our passions spring from. And we've already mentioned that because of all this, a passion can go too far. You probably all know somebody in your life who you just wish would give it a rest <laughs> because their passion seems to dominate their life. A passion can kind of take over, just like gravity can take over. You know, there's, uh, gravity isn't always a good thing. If you, if you happen to be on the top of a 100-foot cliff and you fall off, gravity is not your friend. <laughs> at that point, you wish gravity was much less. Uh, at that point, you wish the gravity was more like what you experience on the moon because you would still be alive if you fell off a 100-foot cliff on the moon. You would not die as you surely would here on Earth. So another uh, aspect of the, how these two are similar is in gravity, the, the closer you are to that mass, the more likely you are to be pulled in because the gravitational pull gets much stronger. And that's true with our passions too. The closer you get to your, the source of your passion, the more likely you are to be pulled in. This is also true of Jesus. That's why this podcast is called Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. The subversive mission of this podcast is to urge all of us a little closer every time to the uh, unbelievable mass of the heart of Jesus. We just want to get a little closer every day, every week, every month, every year to the heart of Jesus. Because the closer we get, 
the gravitational pull gets stronger. And pretty soon in our relationship with him, if we keep doing that, we cross the event horizon and we're drawn forever into the orbital gravity of the black hole who is Jesus. Maybe my next book should be called The Black Hole Who Is Jesus. <laughs> I'm not sure that that would make it past a publisher's uh, vetting committee. So uh, meanwhile, back at these comparisons between gravity and passion, a passion will draw you in. Like if you're around somebody who is very passionate, you can often become more passionate just by being around that person. It's attractive. It's magnetic. And yes, if you're around a person who's very passionate, you can also feel repelled by that person's passion. We're experiencing that as part of the divisiveness that's happening in our country right now. Some of that divisiveness is because we are repelled by other people's passions. Um, we don't like those passions. And when our passions are equal but opposite, they collide. And that's detrimental. Uh, we're seeing that lived out in our, in our environment right now. But when passions are complementary and compatible, a transformation can happen. When, it, when your passion is complementary and compatible with someone else's, that's when transform, transformational things can happen in your relationship. So let me just give you an example of what passion looks like. I've given you the example of jazz in my life, but let me give you one that um, was a tipping point, a turning point in my relationship with Jesus. This happened about I don't know, it must be 15 or 20 years ago now. I was invited. I've probably told this story in the podcast before, but just in case you've forgotten it, here we go again. Um, I was invited to a, a big uh, youth ministry conference uh, at the mega church Willow Creek, which is just outside of Chicago. And um, there was about two or 3,000 youth pastors at this conference. And the organizers, when they reached out to invite me to come speak, um, asked me if I would be willing to do a three-hour pre-conference session and do something that I had never done before at any other conference, to do something something kind of experimental. And I said, yes, I've been thinking for a while about um, this uh, progression that had been happening in my life. I was already at the very front end of this movement away from trying harder to get better in my Christian life to a fascination with Jesus. I had just started into the territory of this uh, growing passion for Jesus. And I've been playing around with a way of thinking about ministry, sp specifically youth ministry in this case, that tied every single thing you did to an orbital focus around Jesus. What would happen if everything you did in one way or another um, helped propel young people into a, a, a closer proximity to the heart of Jesus. What would happen then? So I just started exploring this and started sort of experimenting with it. And I thought, let me, I'll try something um, that is uh, a, a training environment for youth pastors on what this would look like in their ministry. So I concocted this three hour experience. I had about 30, 35 youth pastors who showed up for it. Um, I explored it for the first time with them in this three hour setting. And at the end of that time, the atmosphere was electric. There was tears around the room. I was crying. There was people lined up to talk to me after it was over. And typically what they wanted to say, um, the reason they waited so long after it was over to make sure they could say this to me, but they wanted to say it almost privately, is they wanted to tell me that though they 
had been following Jesus their whole life. And now their job was to introduce other people to Jesus that during that three hour experience that their eyes were opened and they wanted to tell me that they felt like they had never known Jesus before that experience. And I just nodded my head and said, I totally get where you're coming from. I understand. Um, so this atmosphere was electric. It was intimate. It was transformational. It was powerful. I left that environment and I had no more responsibilities. I could just pop in to whatever I wanted to at the conference. And I had lots of friends who were also speaking there. So what I would do is I'd pop into different workshops and I'd sit for about 20 minutes just to kind of get the gist of what they were doing. And then I'd pop into another one because I wanted to experience as many of them as I could while I was there. And I did that all day long that first day. Um, it was the perfect environment for me because I had no more responsibility. So I was just free to do whatever I wanted. And I didn't have the, this looming responsibility in front of me. Um, but by the end of that day, I just felt dull and dead inside. Like something um, was just not just numb in my heart, but aching in my heart. And I could not understand what, what was happening to me. I, I remember sitting in this big overstuffed chair in the huge atrium at Willow Creek that it looks like an airplane hangar. It's just enormous. You can fit thousands of people in their atrium. And I'm sitting there in this overstuffed chair with all these people swirling around me. And I, and you, you know how you can kind of lose yourself in a crowd? Like you, you can be isolated in a crowd. That's, that was me sitting alone, trying to wrestle out what I was feeling inside. And I literally started to cry um, because I felt so suddenly depressed inside. And so I asked Jesus, what is happening to me? And it was one of those moments where I felt his voice was very clear. He just spoke back to me and said, Rick, you're ruined for everything but me now. Rick, you're ruined for everything but me now. And as soon as I heard those words, this huge weight lifted off my shoulders. I felt light and free. The, the weight came from feeling like I still had to fit into this world where I had gone all day long listening to uh, speaker after speaker talk about the tips and techniques of the Christian life and of ministry. And at, the more I listened, the more depressed I became, the more the, the weight of that kind of life bore down on me. And what Jesus was trying to say is, that's not the life you're going to live anymore. Trying harder to get better is now in your rearview mirror. What will drive you now is a passion for my heart. And from that point to this point, it's been true. It's not like I'm, you know, um, uh, intentionally using my willpower to stay in orbit anymore. I cross an event horizon and his gravitational pull now draws me to him. It doesn't take effort for me to be drawn to Jesus. I just am. And that's what he was trying to say. Let go now. Let go of the earth, <laughs> I guess is a way of saying it. Release yourself to my gravitational pull, which is what I did. And then, my, and then I became weightless <laughs> as I've drawn to him. Um, what's interesting about that metaphor, by the way, is that when I'm fully drawn to him, when I'm fully enveloped in that black hole who's Jesus, my weight will become inestimable. It'll become huge um, because of the gravitational pull. And that means that our weight, our impact in the world becomes much bigger the, the closer we're drawn to the weight of his black hole heart. Our impact in the world, our influence in the world grows and grows as we get closer to him. 
That's just the truth. But we don't have to work to be drawn closer to him. We just have to release ourselves to him. So, so this was a major turning point in my relationship with Jesus. And what fueled it was a growing passion for his heart. And it was my passion that looped me into his orbit. It's my passion that fuels my everyday life today. Not necessarily hurt, challenge, and pain that's happening in my life. Although that still obviously drives me to Jesus. In my everyday life, it's the fuel of passion that draws me near to him. And that passion operates like gravity in our life. So let's, uh, let's explore a, a few stories that reveal Jesus's passion, because again, this series is called In His Image. And really what we're exploring is the ways in which we are mirroring or reflective of Jesus's own uh, characteristic and makeup. So let's, let's explore a little bit about uh, Jesus's own passion. What did he have passion for and why? And then let's also explore a little bit of others' passion for him. Why did others develop a passion for Jesus? So our mission here is to simply explore what is Jesus passionate about and why is he passionate about it? And then to explore, well, why do some people feel a deep passion for Jesus? So we're going to explore this. First, let's, let's take a couple of stories about Jesus and his passion. So um, I have three stories to choose from here. I'm just deciding which ones I want to pursue. Let's, let's do an obvious one and a less obvious one. So the first one's from John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. John 2, 13 through 22. If you're not driving a car and you want to flip open to that, now would be a good time to do that. John 2, 13 through 22. This is the story of Jesus clearing the temple, an obvious moment of passion. So let's explore this. But as I read this, I want you to be thinking about this question in the back of your mind. What is Jesus passionate about and why is he passionate about it? What is he passionate about and why? Here we go. John 2, 13 through 22. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. So Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Well, Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and the cattle, and he scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, and he turned over their tables. Then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Well, then his disciples saw this. They remembered this prophecy from scripture. Passion for God's house will consume me. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. What? They exclaimed. It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days? But when the, Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. All right, gang, there's a little scene of passion from Jesus' life. The question is, what is he passionate about and why? So the disciples remembered this prophecy from the Old Testament that passion for God's house will consume the Messiah. 
So why, why though? Why, why is Jesus so passionate about the temple? Well, it helps us to take a step back for just a second. At this time, the temple was the place of God's presence. It was the, the representation of God's heart. And when you, the further you entered into the temple, the closer you came to God's presence. It was a place of great intimacy. So it, you might compare it to, well, let's, let's use this comparison. In our world, in our home, um, our bedroom is the, the sort of the core place of intimacy. Let's just say that that's the metaphoric center of intimacy in our home is our bedroom. Well, what would happen if you came home one day and you discovered that your spouse had opened a retail store in your bedroom <laughs> and there was customers coming in and selling things and, you're, and your spouse had turned your bedroom into a place where your family could make money and it was no longer a place of intimacy. It was no longer a place of relationship. It was no longer um, a protected safe space, a refuge. Now it was simply a place to buy and sell things. How would you feel if that's what you came home to one day? Well, maybe you'd feel passion. <laughs> uh, maybe you'd feel the passion of someone who does not want the, the place of intimacy to be hijacked into something uh, mercenary or marketplace driven. So Jesus clears the temple because it's abhorrent to him that all of this uh, consumer activity is happening in the space of relational intimacy. The temple was both a symbol and a reality for this temporary bridge in, into intimacy with God. And there is nothing that is deeper in the heart of God than the restoration of intimacy with his beloved creation. And the temple for a time was the sort of fulcrum for that intimacy. And here Jesus is experiencing a bastardization of the bedroom, a, uh, a co-opting of the space of intimacy. And so, of course, he's quite passionate about it because he is passionate about the restoration of intimacy and relationship with his, with his people. And so he clears the temple. And then he's, because Jesus is sassy, when the Jewish leaders are upset and say he has to uh, produce a, a miraculous sign to prove that he has the authority to do what he's doing, he gets sassy with them and says, well, if you destroy the temple in three days, I'll raise it up. He's really poking at them. They have no idea what he's, what he's saying. Uh, but uh, uh, the scripture records what he meant by that. And his disciples later remember this scene in the temple and remember what he said. He's really uh, in his sassy way saying, oh, I am really the temple of God because my physical body houses the presence of God. That's who I am. And, and you, uh, you can destroy this temple, this body, but I'm going to build it back up in three days. And I, in my resurrected body, I will forever um, house the heart of God in, in the temple that is my body. So uh, he, he adds a little sassy jab there at the end to the Pharisees. So there's an obvious story of passion. Um, let's, let's go to a, a, a parable version of his passion. So here's a metaphoric example of the passion of Jesus. This is from John chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. This is 
Jesus is teaching about the good shepherd and his sheep. So John 10, 1 through 13, here we go. I tell you the truth, anyone who sneaks over the wall of a sheepfold, rather than going through the gate, must surely be a thief and a robber. But the one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. And the gatekeeper opens the gate for him. And the sheep recognize his voice and they come to him. And he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. And after he has gathered his flock, he walks ahead of them and they follow him because they know his voice. Now they won't follow a stranger. They'll run from him because they don't know his voice. Well, those who heard Jesus use this illustration didn't understand what he meant. So then he explained it to them. I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the true sheep did not listen to them. Yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. They will come and go freely and they will find good pastures. The thieves purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. But my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. A hired hand will run when he sees a wolf coming. He'll abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him and he isn't their shepherd. And so the wolf attacks them and scatters the flock. The hired hand runs away because he's working only for the money and doesn't really care about the sheep. And there Jesus leaves it kind of hanging. He's basically saying, and I ain't that guy. I will give up my life for the sheep. I will not uh, run away when the wolf comes. I will put my life between the wolf and my sheep because I am passionate about them. Well, why is Jesus passionate about the sheep? It's important to remember that when he uses the metaphor of sheep with us, um, we all think it's nice and cuddly and like a, a house pet kind of sheep. But uh, those who heard this illustration knew exactly what sheep are like. They were under no illusion about what sheep, the characteristics of sheep were really like. Sheep were obstinate, they were headstrong, they were foolish, they were thick, they, they were easily led, um, they, uh, they sometimes went their own way and got into deep trouble that they had no idea how to get out of. Sound familiar? <laughs> Sounds a lot like me to me. Sounds a lot like us to me. So Jesus was not trying to spin um, our characteristics as human beings. Actually, he was quite brutally honest about what we are like and simultaneously telling us he absolutely loves his sheep. Even though they are all these things, he has a deep heart and passion for his sheep, so much so that he would lay down his life for them. Why? Why is he passionate for the sheep? Why would he die for the sheep? Uh, you have to say that part of Satan's deceptive lie, the narrative that he wants us to believe, and he hoped that Jesus would actually fall for, is that these sheep aren't worth it. I mean, come on. Why sacrifice yourself for these beings that are just disgusting to me? All of these characteristics that are true about them, they're disgusting. Why sacrifice anything for them? This is the lie of Satan. Jesus, however, sees the beauty at the heart of the sheep. He has compassion on the sheep. He understands that they've been um, deluded and deceived. He understands that some of them 
have uh, lost their affinity for the voice of their shepherd and therefore have put themselves in great danger. He understands that these sheep have sometimes gotten into their head that they don't need their shepherd anymore and they wander into dire circumstances because of it. But he loves the agency in the heart of those sheep. What he loves is the heart of a sheep that when they hear his voice, they, they, they immediately know who their shepherd is and they follow that voice. He loves the heart of passion and loyalty and fealty and gravitational pull that sheep have for their shepherd. He loves it because that's what facilitates intimacy. If you've ever seen a shepherd call his sheep from the field, it's a real display of intimacy. It's quite powerful to watch. These sheep distinguish the voice of their shepherd and come running because they know who that voice represents. Um, it's this uh, capability and capacity for relational intimacy and passionate attachment that Jesus loves about his sheep. And he wants to help them restore their own passionate relationship with, with Jesus. So um, let's switch to a couple of stories real quick here of um, others' passion for Jesus. And let's ask a similar question. Why does this person feel a passion for Jesus? Why? Here's one that I don't know if we've ever really talked about on the podcast. This is from John 3, 22 through 36. This is when John the Baptist exalts Jesus. John 3, 22 through 36. So here we go. Then Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem and went into the Judean countryside. Jesus spent some time with them there, baptizing people. And at this time, John the Baptist was baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water there and people kept coming to him for baptism. Now, this was before John was thrown into prison. Now, a debate broke out between John's disciples and a certain Jew over ceremonial cleansing. So John's disciples came to him and said, hey, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one you identified as the Messiah, he's also baptizing people and everybody's going to him instead of coming to us. Well, John replied, well, no one can receive anything unless God gives it to him from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you I'm not the Messiah. I'm only here to prepare the way for him. It's the bridegroom who marries the bride and the bridegroom's friend, called him the best man, is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I'm filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. He's come from above and is greater than anyone else. We are of the earth, and we speak of earthly things. But he's come from heaven and is greater than anyone else. He testifies about what he has seen and heard, but how few believe what he tells them. Anyone who accepts his testimony can affirm that God is true. For he is sent by God. He speaks God's words. For God gives him the spirit without limit. The father loves his son and has put everything into his hands. And anyone who believes in God's son has eternal life. Anyone who doesn't obey the son will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's judgment. So why does John the Baptist here feel a passion for Jesus? You can hear some of our descriptions of gravity in his passion. Here's what he says, that the one that he is passionate about is greater than him, higher than him, 
that this one that he's drawn to, his mass is heavy. And therefore, John is saying, and I'm drawn into his orbit. And I'm happy to be just drawn into his orbit. I don't need to compete with his gravitational force. I just want to be drawn to him. I want to be his best man. And the best man's job is to protect this relationship between the bride and the bridegroom so that no one else threatens that relationship. And they feel a great purpose and energy and excitement around living out that purpose. And that's what John is saying, that he is thrilled to come alongside Jesus, to point to Jesus, to point to the heavier mass, the heavier weight, the heavier gravitational pull, who is Jesus. Um, and the, it, John the Baptist has discovered the thing that we all long for, the higher thing in your life that you give everything to. And John has now given his whole heart, gone all in, because he is convinced that this higher thing, this greater mass has now come to earth. And his, his name is the Messiah and his earthly name is Jesus. Let's, uh, let's explore one last story before we close off here. This is from John chapter seven, verses 37 through 50. Uh, this is a story of the Roman guards and Nicodemus defending Jesus. And again, the, the question I want you to think about as I'm reading this is why do these people feel a passion for Jesus? So here we go, John 7, 37 through 50. On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink for the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. So he's saying this, uh, obviously referencing a Old Testament scripture passage that, that points forward to the Messiah, that rivers of living water will flow from the Messiah's heart. Um, Picking up in verse, verse 39, when Jesus said living water, he was speaking of the spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. So he's foreshadowing this living water that will be poured out to all those who attach themselves to him in the future. When the crowds heard him say this, some of them declared, surely this man is the prophet we've been expecting. Others said, he's the Messiah. Still others said, oh, he can't be. Will the Messiah really come from Galilee? For the scriptures clearly state that the Messiah will be born of the royal line of David in Bethlehem. But the, but the, the let's see, I, I lost my way. The royal line of David in Bethlehem, the village where King David was born. So the crowd was divided about him. Some even wanted him arrested, but no one laid a hand on him. And when the temple guards returned, now just it's important to pause here for a second. The temple guards were witnessing all this, hearing all this. They were standing there trying to make sure nothing got out of hand in this conflict. So the temple guards were right there listening to all of this, watching what Jesus said and did. So when the temple guards returned without having arrested Jesus, they had, they had been sent there, by the way, by the religious leaders to arrest him, but they didn't do it. They came back without him. So when they, when they came back without having arrested Jesus, the leading priests and Pharisees demanded, Hey, why don't you bring him in? Well, the, the, the guards said, we've never heard anyone speak like this. The guards responded, well, have you been led astray too? The Pharisees mocked. Is there a single one of us rulers or Pharisees who believes in him? This foolish crowd follows him, but they're ignorant of the law. God's curse is on them. 
So they're saying, essentially, how can you possibly believe this guy? None of us believes that he is who he says he is. And if you do believe in him, you're a fool and you're ignorant and you have God's curse on you. Well, then Nicodemus, remember him, the one who snuck in to meet with Jesus one-on-one at night, Nicodemus, a leader who had met with Jesus earlier, spoke up. Is it legal to convict a man before he's given a hearing, he asked? Just leave it at that. Nicodemus throws out an interesting question to the crowd. Is it really legal to judge this guy before you really know him? So why do the guards and Nicodemus feel a passion for Jesus? You have to understand that Nicodemus is risking a lot to go against the crowd. The Pharisees just said, not a single person among us believes in this Messiah. They don't realize that Nicodemus does. (laughs) He's just not made it public. But Nicodemus does believe in him. And then Nicodemus takes a risk in this hostile crowd to push back against the momentum. That, and that momentum eventually would, would end up with Jesus' execution. The, this, this anger, this, this, this uh, uh, taking umbrage at Jesus grew into a murderous conspiracy in the end that led to his crucifixion. And Nicodemus here is standing up against it in its earliest stages. Is it legal to convict a man before he's given a hearing? He's really saying, you don't know anything about this guy, and yet you're ready to just throw him out as not who he says he is. So the, if you think about it, the, the, uh, the Roman guards also have been dispatched by the religious leaders to arrest this, this false messiah. Um, these pagan Roman guards come back and say, yeah, we didn't arrest him because we've never heard anyone talk like that. There is something about this guy. So what, what and why do these people feel a passion for Jesus? There's something about what Jesus is saying that, that is upending, that is not like the try harder to get better message of the Old Testament religious leaders. It is, it's a message that doesn't have anything to do with following all of the jots and tittles of the, of the uh, Old Testament laws, Jesus is offering something completely different. He's asking people to drink of him, to come and drink of him as a person. He's really offering them an intimate relationship. And this was absolutely radical for those who heard this. They, they, he is offering them the intimacy of a close relationship instead of the bucket list of, uh, uh, of a, uh, a life dominated by following all of the tiny little laws that the Jewish leaders had expanded out of from God's law. So what they're hearing is a man inviting them into a transformative relationship. And in a way, Nicodemus has developed a passion as well for Jesus for the same reasons, that this is not like a typical prophet or a typical rabbi. This man is offering the, the, the weight of God himself. He's inviting uh, the smaller moon to come into the orbit of the larger earth and the smaller earth to come into the orbit of the larger sun. He's inviting um, a, uh, an entree into the gravitational pull of the weightiest thing in the universe, the God of the universe. There is something incredibly attractive about that. And when you give yourself over to that gravitational pull, passion results. 
And in both cases, the Roman guards and Nicodemus have decided to give themselves over to the weighty gravitational pull they feel in Jesus. Right, there you have it, guys. We're uh, exploring, well, why did Jesus have passion for what he did and why did others have passion for him? I think we've, uh, we've kind of uh, sketched out a 360 degree view of how passion works and why it is the everyday fuel for our relationship with him. There is a way to live in close, uh, close proximity, close, close intimacy with Jesus, close dependency on Jesus every day if we will allow ourselves to get closer and closer to him, to understand and taste of his heart so that the magnetic pull of his heart draws us even closer into it so that the gravitational pull, the weight of his heart, just locks us in his orbit. There's a way to, for us to live our lives in such a way that we can say, as Peter said to Jesus at one point, when all of the disciples, when all of the, the hangers on in John 6 uh, left Jesus because he, he uh, kept telling them that they had to eat of his body and drink of his blood if they wanted any part of him, and then didn't explain what he meant, and then therefore drove all the crowds away. And in that empty space, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, are you going to leave too? And Peter, my favorite, my favorite response in all the Bible, uh, well, where else would we go, Jesus? Only you have words of life and truth. What Peter was really describing is that he had crossed his own event, event horizon. Now, for him, um, his commitment to Jesus, his intimacy with Jesus was like gravity. He was locked in the orbit of Jesus. And he had crossed his event horizon, and there was no way to escape it. Even after he betrays Jesus, he can't escape his orbit. He comes back into close intimacy with Jesus. Passion, passion is not a should. It's organic. It grows naturally. And it grows naturally when we get close to Jesus. All right, gang, thanks for listening. Hey, you, uh, you can explore um, more links to the uh, the books I've talked about at the top here and other stuff that might be of interest to you by just going to paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com. You're going to look for season five, episode 24 there and just scroll down. You'll see links. There's a link there for you to add your name to my email list. If you would like to get um, anything from me in the future, blogs, resources, notices about upcoming things, just add yourself to my email list. It takes less than 10 seconds. It's very easy. So there'll be a link there to add yourself to my email list. And there's a, uh, an, a link to my website, ricklawrence.com, if you want to go exploring there. Um, I am working right now to uh, transform and build on my website to, um, to start to, uh, to bring new things um, to you. I'm, I'm starting to uh, create my own resources, my own ways to engage people that will be available on that site in the future. I'm still in the planning and building process. Some friends are helping me out with that, but I'll let you know as the, as time goes on, when that uh, website has been renovated and you can explore some new, some, some new uh, nooks and crannies on there, some new resources that I'm trying to develop now. So that, that's again, ricklawrence.com. It's embarrassing to tell you that I have a website that is actually my name, but I do. I've had friends over the years just tell me I'm an idiot for not 
for not uh, having a website that has my name on it. So eventually I did it. So, but I must say I did it reluctantly. But there you have it. It's ricklawrence.com. You can go explore more if you want to go there. And uh, next week we'll have a new episode of Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. Um, look for it by uh, subscribing. That's the easiest way to make sure you keep getting it. Go to um, iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to it. So it'll just show up, uh, show up in your feed automatically. Um, so head on over to one of those and make sure that you subscribe so that you get this, uh, get this every single week. And gang, we'll talk again next week.